Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, so this week, uh, Knesset passed a law about reforming the judicial system in Israel. And the question is, are we going to civil war? I'll answer that question and a lot of other things next on my news analysis. Hi, so let's start our discussion today with what happened on Monday at the Knesset in Israel. The Knesset passed a law uh, that it's actually an amendment of basic law of the judiciary that places a constraint on uh, what's called the reasonableness doctrine. And to understand what happened and its implications, it's important to understand what the reasonableness clause or doctrine actually is. The reasonableness clause is something that was invented by Aaron Barak as a uh, justice in the Supreme Court in the 1980s. Basically, it's an idea of administrative law. Administrative law is supposed to oversee what the government does to see if, uh, you know, if, if it's acting inappropriate, if it's acting illegally, unlawfully in its execution of its duties. So, for instance, if a clerk at the post office decides that although the post office is supposed to be open from 8 o'clock in the morning until 6.30 in the evening continuously, that he doesn't think that it's, uh, uh, that it's necessary to open the, uh, uh, the, the post office that he works at until 11 o'clock in the morning and that uh, he's arbitrarily deciding that he's going to close it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and not reopen in the afternoon. So um, that's the kind of thing that administrative law is supposed to remedy. You're supposed to be able to go to the court sue and say, hey, this guy is uh, uh, not operating correctly. And then that's that the, the courts are, are supposed to be using the administrative law to do it. So Barack introduced this idea of unreasonableness. So he would say, well, it's not that the uh, clerk at the post office is uh, behaving unlawfully or whatever, but actually that this is unreasonable or more to the point, um, it's unreasonable for the IDF to carry out uh, an operation in, in this way against terrorists in Judea and Samaria. They should be doing it in that way because that would be a more reasonable standard. So the, the idea of reasonableness as a basis for administrative actions by the court was invented in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, Barack introduced this even more uh, weirder idea, which was that there's no distinction uh, from his perspective in the application of the reasonableness idea between the postal clerk that wants to sleep late and go home early and the prime minister of Israel. 
that uh, that uh, that the uh, court gets to second guess the judgment of uh, of the government, just as it can second guess the judgment of a postal clerk. So, for instance, the court decided that uh, the then uh, Minister Moshe Kaflin was acting unreasonably when he decided not to place an extra tax on rolling tobacco a few years ago. Well, he decided that he didn't want to add an extra tax on rolling tobacco because he had promised no new taxes. And so he had an election pledge to voters where he said he wasn't going to raise taxes. The judges say, with all due respect, uh, we're going to second guess your judgment. Your political pledges to uh, voters are meaningless. We think that rolling tobacco is really hazardous to people's health, and therefore, you, you know, you're we're going to overturn your decision and compel you to tax tobacco. Or, you know, uh, uh, Barack uh, originally used it to say, well, in the 1990s, we think it's unreasonable for the robbing government not to fire uh, a, a minister named Pinkasi who had been indicted for whatever graft and, you know, he hadn't been tried, he hadn't been found guilty, but, you know, he's indicted and therefore it's unreasonable for for him to serve in the government. The fact that then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin didn't agree with them was neither here nor there. Barack decided uh, that he knew better than Rabin and therefore Rabin was compelled to fire Pinfasi and later uh, Shah's leader Arya Derry uh, when he came under indictment because that's just the way it goes. And really, it's moved on to every aspect of uh, government policy, from the most serious to the most mundane. So, for instance, uh, the Supreme Court decided that uh, the government was wrong to give the Israel Prize to one candidate because they didn't like what he said, and therefore he was not a reasonable a winner of Israel's uh, highest uh, civilian prize that's conferred by the government. And on another occasion, uh, when a professor at Ben Gurion University had the decision to provide him with a prize revoked by the education minister because he had called for an academic boycott of Israel, the Supreme Court compelled the government to reinstate the prize to this professor because uh, they thought it was unreasonable to punish him as an Israeli as an Israeli academic. Uh, calling for the international community or the United States and Europe, et cetera, to boycott himself and his institution. So they get to decide everything. And and over the the past uh, three decades since Barack did this, and really the, the Supreme Court went into high gear in terms of undermining government policies and taking away the government's ability to make any judgments about anything or opening made by every government minister, the government, the prime minister, to being second-guessed by these unelected, self-selected 15 justices of the Supreme Court, that concept of reasonableness sort of became the ground zero of uh, criticism and calls for judicial reform in Israel. Um, and, and it used to be, of course, uh, uh, viewed uh, that way as, as sort of a consensus issue. So what what is the law that the uh, government that the Knesset passed on Monday uh, with a vote of 64 to zero because the opposition boycotted the vote. Um, and the answer is that all it does is say, I mean, it allows the court to continue second guessing uh, mayors and, and uh, non-elected officials at every level of government, but it says you can't second guess the judgment of the 
government and government ministers. That's all it says. So you can't, these are people that, you know, were elected because of their judgment. They received the confidence of voters because of what they said that they believe in. And they have to be able to make decisions that they deem. And you're going to have to use another excuse to intervene in their policies. And there are, by the way, ample means to do it. Even Barack himself acknowledged that in an interview a couple of years ago that he didn't have a problem, he said, with overturning the reasonable standard because he's got lots of other ways to overturn government decisions, including another rule that he invented about proportionality. But whatever the case, uh, so all the law does is is constrain the court's ability to intervene, to overturn, to abrogate uh, decisions by governments and ministers and the prime minister based on this one clause that, that Barack made up. And again, th- to be clear, this doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Britain has a reasonableness concept, but it's basically the same as arbitrary. Um, and it's very limited. Uh, and I don't think they use it on elected officials. So this doesn't exist anywhere else. It's one of the things that Barack made up in order to seize dictatorial powers for the court uh, at, at the expense of the government and democracy and the Knesset. So um, the question is, is this important what they did? So on one level, it's not important because, as I said, the court can figure out lots of different ways to second guess the government, to, uh, to undermine its authority, to block it from governing. Uh, and uh, it will resort to those without question. So on that level, it's not important, but it is important because uh, it, it, it passed. You know, for the past six months, we've been subjected to constant, never-ending extortion of the government by the opposition leaders, by uh, by the media, by the rioters in the streets of Israel, that if it dares to pass, if it dares to pass anything, that in any way limits even symbolically the po- the powers of the Supreme Court, um, then uh, then they're going to go they're going to you know go to the mattresses. It'll be all bets off. They're going to take apart the IDF. They're going to take apart the I- the Israel Air Force. They're going to do lots of things. And this threat hanging over the head of the government that if they pass something. Um, that the country is going to go to hell in a handbasket because the left is going to respond uh, in a very dramatic way to the passage of anything that in any way limits the powers of the court. So uh, so in that respect, it's very important because even if, as the government has said, that they're willing to negotiate this bill, renegotiate it, reopen it to to amendment or whatever, but that it would have to be a package where the opposition would have to agree to come to an agreement with the uh, government on the whole landscape of judicial reform initiatives that they want to pass through. Uh, What the government was essentially saying is, don't forget, this is a parliamentary democracy. So we want to reach decisions not behind closed doors of the president's house, not... um, you know, on television, let's come. You want to you want to debate? Fine, debate. But if you're not going to show up for the debate, we have the power to pass the laws without you, and we will. And so that was a really important thing. Um, it said that you can't extort the overthrow of the government or the paralysis of the government. The government may not want to act on its own. It may not want to be in this situation, but it will not allow people who are extorting it to rule the day, because that really would just be the end of democracy, such as it is 
uh, in Israel. Um, and so, uh, you know, the question is, uh, how is the opposition going to respond to this? And then how is the court going to respond to it? So first, regarding the opposition, well, we already saw that they lit the country on fire yet again on uh, Monday night and on Tuesday. The doctors' uh, union, the physicians' union, announced that they were going on strike. Uh, they were going to abandon the hospitals, abandon their patients, abandon their Hippocratic oath in order to go be hypocrites and uh, say that they're defending democracy by uh, by abandoning uh, caring for the caring for the sick. Um, and uh, the government immediately went to the labor court and the labor court said, okay, you can protest on behalf of democracy for two hours and then go back to work. And so that's what happened. So that was a dud. Um, we saw that Moody's put out a new, 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 you know, you, you bad boys and girls uh, letter on Monday saying, well, you know, you passed this law and that's too bad and that's no good, but your credit rating Israel is still minus. We're just going to say something nasty so that the media can leave us alone. Because that's the thing is that the left, according to the media reports, has been uh, using everything it has, including the kitchen sink, to try to uh, lobby Moody's and the other credit rating uh, uh, institutions in the world to lower Israel's credit rating. They want to tank the economy to show that this is what they can do. That this is this is this is punishment for uh, passing this uh, this law, and they failed. Moody's uh, stood up to them in a way. I mean, it 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 wrote a nasty letter, but it didn't change Israel's credit rating, just as it didn't change Israel's credit rating in the first. Uh, iteration of of these riots uh, last in in uh, March, um, and then there's violence. We had Ehud Olmert, the ex-con, the former prime minister, went on Britain's Channel Four, and he's finally you know reinvented himself as uh, as you know the the I don't know oh, I believe the 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 Che Guevara of the the revolution or whatever. So he goes on Britain's Channel 4 and he says we're moving towards civil war, uh, which sounded a lot like inciting civil war from where I'm sitting. Uh, and uh, then last night, Monday night in Israel, there were some, uh, we talked about this in previous uh, uh, shows that you have these people who live in the cities, live in places like Shiret Shmona, and the leftists from the kibbutzim around Kiryat Shmona came and blocked traffic in Kiryat Shmona a few weeks ago as part of their pro-democracy protest. And so the, a bunch of people from Kiryat Shmona went to all of the kibbutzim and blocked them from going back home. And so last night, the same thing, leftists from the kibbutzim around uh, Beersheba blocked traffic in Beersheba for a few hours. And so then you had some people from Beersheba who went to these kibbutzim to block the entrance to the kibbutzim. So one of the kibbutzim that they went to was Kibbutz Chatzirim, and uh, they showed us footage of all of the, all of the. Uh, uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. They showed this footage where you have, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen from what I saw, maybe a little bit more people standing there blocking with their cars the entrance to the kibbutz, and then the security uh, officer from the kibbutz gets out of his car. He's um, He's a member of the Brothers in Arms, one of the most militant uh, insurrectionist groups that have been uh, harassing, assaulting Israeli government ministers and members of Knesset and the coalition 
uh, outside of their houses and uh, in hotels, restaurants, all the rest of it. So they've, they've been very violent. So this guy is one of the members of uh, this uh, Brothers in Arms group and gets out of his car. He had just come from Beersheba, apparently, where he was blocking traffic. And he gets out and he sees this half dozen or so uh, government supporters blocking uh, his entrance into his kibbutz. He pulls out his gun. He starts pointing it at them and then he shoots it in the air. Nobody was threatening his life. Nobody had a weapon. Nobody even had a not a sidearm, not a not a gun, not a knife, and here he is opening fire. And uh, it's not clear whether he was arrested or whether he was remanded to custody. If this obviously had happened to a right winger, it happens all the time to the uh, settlers in Japan, Samaria. There are actual victims of terrorist uh, attacks, whether it's rock throwing, or cocktail throwing, or whatever. They get out of their cars, they uh, shoot in the in the air, and then boom, they're arrested. Uh, so, uh, this is something that we've seen a lot of, and, uh, now they're starting to use violence. They're being, they're being called on to use violence, but I think that at the end of the day, I mean, this is not the kind of thing that people like to see. Those I had, uh, in, in Jerusalem, you've had a couple of films coming out, of rioters blocking traffic on Begin Highway in Jerusalem yesterday and terrorizing children who are in the back seats of their cars with their parents stuck because of these people for two hours uh, on the roads. In one case, uh, a mother was objecting to what they were doing, and so they shattered her windshield, and she had three little kids in the back. Uh, today I saw another uh, clip of a mother uh, being attacked and cursed because she's Haredi, she's an ultra-Orthodox Jew, and uh, she had two little girls, her daughters, in the back seat. One had a pacifier in her mouth, and these people are cursing at their mother and screaming at her in traffic. So I think that these kinds of uh, films, these kinds of videos, uh, these kinds of incidents are going to put a damper, put it that way, in the public support for these insurrectionists. Um, the Data is already showing. I saw a poll today came out saying that I think over 70% of ben Benny Gantz's voters want him to sit down with the Likud and try to reach a compromise on judicial reform going forward. And 49% of BHFT voters want Yair Lapid to do that, which is interesting because they've always been considered more extreme. And still you have a near parity of uh, nearly 50%, 49% of BHFT voters want that. So that's, that's new. So that means that uh, support on the left, obviously, there's no support on the right for what they're doing. Support on the left for what they're doing is diminishing. People woke up this morning after the bill was passed into law, and they saw that Israel is still a democracy. So I think that that's having an impact. But you have this hardcore radicals that are sort of led by Ehud Barak, the, again, the former prime minister, former defense minister, former IDF chief of staff. And this video from 2020 came out thing last week showing him describing in granular detail precisely what we're seeing today that it was supposed to be against corona but using the air force using air force pilots using uh, to, to threaten to take apart the idf and all the rest of it and um and he's and one of the questions that was broached to him by one of the uh, radical leftists who used to be a pilot was, uh, well, you know, is there any constellation in which you'll come back to power? You know, a lot of us would like to see you back in the prime minister's uh, role. And so Barack said that he had talked to somebody about that once who told him that um, 
the people will call him back to service as prime minister of Israel when there are the when there are bodies of dead Jews killed by other Jews. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's the word? Uh, um, floating in the Arkon River in Tel Aviv. So it, it, it's given what he's done now, and we've talked about this a lot on the show that he really instigated everything that happened. Uh, before there were even elections, November 1st, and certainly before the government was fat formed in, in December of last year and before Justice Minister Yariv Levine presented his plan for judicial reform in January. So this was all pre-planned. It has nothing to do with judicial reform. And Barack sees himself returning to power only if there is a civil war and Jews are killing Jews and there are Jewish bodies. Uh, that were put there by other Jews floating in the Arkon River. So there are people like Barack, people around Barack, who want this kind of thing. We saw Olmert again, I opened with this, calling for civil war on British television. Um, so we have that. Um, and we have the media. You know, the media received money from these high-tech gurus to run front-page ads. This is in Yisrael Ayom, my former employer, I got fired from because I was pro Netanyahu uh, last year, and Yidiot Afronod and Kakalist and The Marker and Haaretz all had the same front page, which was just a, all black, right? All black, and it was paid for. And it was like, oh, you know, they can't reject ads. You know, when I was working uh, in Israel, when I was working in Mari, when I was working, by the way, Mari didn't do it. I wonder if they refused to. Um, and other newspapers and Jerusalem Post, you know, ads, political ads that were antithetical to the values of the company were rejected. But Tuesday morning, Israelis woke up to this because uh, the journalists agreed, the editors of these papers agreed uh, that uh, their job was not to print the truth. It's not to describe reality to people. It's to use their positions uh, as editors of, of newspapers to demonize the, the majority of Israelis who voted for this government on a on a platform of judicial reform. It's to hide the nature of the law that was passed from uh, from the public and its implications, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we see this behavior by the media that they're part of the insurrectionist camp that are driving a wedge between Israeli citizens. And uh, so long as they continue to maintain their full mobilization on behalf of the insurrectionists, uh, I, I think that, you know, that, that it'll, it'll continue on. But, you know, I think that the ratings, Channel 14 is, you know, now within spitting distance, nobody thought this was possible, of uh, Channel 12, which is you know, is, has a monopoly basically on primetime coverage, including the news and has for over 20 years. And now uh, Channel 2, I mean, Channel 14 is for the first time that's the right wing station it is starting to approach them uh, at primetime hours, which is a remarkable sea change. And I think that people are seeing that they're paying financial price and also price in terms of dwindling relevance to uh, the public and to the discourse in Israel. So maybe they'll have a reassessment of what they're doing, but I don't know. Um, and that leads us to the judges. What are they going to do? So, you know, in a way, it was very clever to pass this law. It was clever to pass this law because, um, you know, obviously the judges, uh, so immediately the, the movement of quality government, which 
uh, I think we've mentioned in the show in the past, uh, receives money from the U.S. government. Um, they immediately petitioned the court, to the high court, to overturn the law, which places limits on the court's power. So the court has to, you know, adjudicate an issue of its own powers. And um, I'm sure that the court will accept it. Uh, and here's the deal. Um, it, it's sort of embarrassing to the court, right? Because they'll, you know, they, they, you have Fayoud, uh, the chief justice, she's retiring. Esther Fayoud is retiring at the end of the year. She's probably going to take this case. And then the question is, does she want to go out in a pillar of smoke, which I think she does, or does she want to be remembered as somebody who tried to bring peace to Israeli society? I think that it's pretty clear that she wants the former, not the latter. Um, but no matter how you slice this, this is going to look bad for the judges because you know, they don't have any statutory basis to strike down a duly promulgated basic law that was passed by an absolute majority in the Knesset of 64 uh, to zero on an issue, again, and, and, and in a basic law that relates to the Supreme Court's own powers and its power, the power of the reasonableness clause, which doesn't exist in any actual law, but rather they invented and seized for themselves. So it makes them look really, really uh, bad. And, uh, you know, it's not clear, on the other hand, as I said, that there would be any actual consequences to leaving this law in place because the Supreme Court has so many different ways that they can overturn uh, government decisions, government policies, you know, that they've invented for themselves, or proportionality, again, being the the first foremost one that they that is completely subjective that they can use to overturn perfectly legal but government policies. So, you know, it, it's not that big a deal. If they overturn it, then, you know, they look bad um, and they don't do much because the law itself doesn't do much. Um, and it's also a way to diminish public support on the left. Again, the right is completely opposed to the court at this point. Uh, but uh, among the supporters of the court on the left, you know, this this is this is a bad look for the justices. So it's not clear what they're going to do. But um, this loops us with the attorney general, Gali Bawrav Miara, was appointed by Gidon Saar, and she sees her mission in office as uh, undermining with the intent of overturning the decision of the voters from the first of November of last year and over overthrowing the government, ousting Netanyahu from power. So, she's had an interesting uh, run of things these past twenty four hours since the law was cast. Really, for the past seven months since uh, the government came into office, and she's made it her business in this world to try to overthrow it personally. So, you remember how in the United States there was this whole thing in the Justice Department with the whole Russia. Uh, Trump collusion uh, fiction that they started talking about, I think it was uh, Rosenstein talking to the Deputy Attorney General about uh, the 25th Amendment and whether the cabinet could oust uh, Donald Trump from power by claiming that he was unfit uh, to govern, etc. So, um, you know, we have, and, and of course, the 25th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is about an incapacitation due to physical ailments, not to the fact that you don't like what somebody stands for, but has been duly elected president of the United States. So here, too, in Israel, we have this crazy interpretation that was kind of raised by a bunch of uh, left-wing lunatics um, that 
you could use Israel's version of the 25th Amendment or incapacitation a clause in the you know, basic law relating to the prime minister to uh, force him out of office. And the incapacitation clause about Ariel Sharon, you know, it was used against him when he went into a vegetative state after he suffered a massive stroke in the end of 2005. And Edward Olmert, who was his deputy, came in and replaced him as interim prime minister before the 2006 elections. Um, and so that was obvious, uh, obviously proper use of the, of the statute because Ariel Sharon was in a coma. So what the left was saying, well, you know, there are lots of different ways to deem a prime minister incapacitated. And so, for instance, they said Benjamin Netanyahu is incapacitated because he's uh, involving himself in legal issues when he's a criminal defendant. And, and let's leave aside for a second the prosecution's case against Netanyahu has completely fallen apart, as we've discussed on the show. And, you know, the, the, the judges themselves, Gerald touted as hanging judges at the outset of his trial, particularly the head of the uh, of the three-judge panel, uh, suddenly they're telling the prosecutors, and you got to drop the bribery charge you haven't, you're, you're near the end of making your case, and you're nowhere near uh, close to proving it, and the defense clearly isn't going to make your case for you. We suggest that you drop that charge. So the charges against it, then you're completely falling apart. Um, but be that as it may, the left says, Oh, he's a criminal defendant. He can't be involved with anything uh, having to do with legal reform because that's going to Im impact him personally as this criminal defendant, and therefore he should be pushed out of office because he's incapacitated. He can't. So, Galibar uh, Miara uh, started making noises that she thought that that was irrelevant. Hey, that she intended to use her power as Attorney General to deem. Uh, Netanyahu uh, incapacitated and push him out of office. So uh, that was why during the first iteration of the judicial reform, Netanyahu was AOL, AWOL, A-W-O-L. Why he was AWOL? Because he was afraid that Galibarov Mir, his attorney general that he inherited from his political nemesis in the previous government, was going to push him out of office. And then the government passed an amendment to uh, the basic law and the prime minister uh, to make clear that incapacitation means physical incapacitation. That is, like Sharon, in a vegetative state, like this 25th Amendment intended in the U.S. Constitution for the U.S. president. So they passed this uh, amendment of the law, and that was what enabled Netanyahu to come in and be the leader that we elected him to be. So... In response to the passage of the the amendment of the of the basic law judiciary in relation to by uh, that placed limits on the reasonableness clause, Galibarov Miara, uh, I can't remember if she actually petitioned the court or she wrote a letter to the court supporting the petition to declare an to to declare the uh, amendment to the incapacitation bill null and void. Because she insists that since Netanyahu is a criminal defendant, he is in conflict of interest, and therefore, how did they put it? I wrote it down here. She said, she's asking the court to strike down the amendment to the law as is because it's an unworthy use of the constitutional powers of the Knesset. Uh, this is an authority, by the way, the concept of unworthy use of the constitutional powers of the Knesset that the court itself invented uh, two years ago to 
is a budget thing to try to seize the powers of the Knesset to actually legislate basic laws. And so um, they seized the power in a, in a petition on the two-year budget that they that ended up not being relevant because whatever. But the point is they, they invented this power to abrogate basic laws or amendments to basic laws based on this idea that they made up called the unworthy use of the constitutional powers of the Knesset. And so Gali Barab is using this power that these justices created for themselves two years ago to say that the court should allow her to remove Netanyahu from office. Uh, then in September, did I mention to you, the Supreme Court has agreed to uh, to adjudicate a petition. What is it? Oh, um, also to ban Netanyahu from office, I think, because of this, but whatever. So they, they're agreeing to discuss Netanyahu's ouster from office. Um, and in the meantime, as you can see in the Carolyn Glick show this week, my guest being uh, Tony Badran, uh, who is an expert on Lebanon and Hezbollah and U.S. assistance to Lebanon, the threats against Israel on our borders, recent VI ramp, uh, continue to escalate. Uh, we're facing a prospect of war with Hezbollah, but everybody's attention is now completely riveted to the left's uh, insurrection, its nervous breakdown, its temper tantrum, whatever you want to call it, uh, against uh, the Israeli people for not being leftists like them. Uh, and uh, this is a really disturbing thing. So I'm glad that I interviewed uh, Tony this week for the Carolyn Glick show so that we could actually look into some of the uh, strategic developments that are alarming that are happening now. Uh, just one last word before I sign off uh, in that realm about the IDF. So, um, you know, you're still having these threats. Uh, the IDF uh, doesn't seem to have suffered any loss of readiness or uh, in the uh, a number of uh, reservists showing up. To the contrary, you're getting more and more reports, particularly in the ground forces, that uh, you have over 100% call-up rates in uh, combat units. So, you know, this is the, the threat of insurrection is not happening as for the Air Force. Um, we'll have to see also, you know, as Shai Kalach said on the show uh, last week, the reports of uh, of the Air Force's non-refusal uh, non to be mobilized for war because of the, uh, the, the uh, judicial uh, reform packages are wildly being overplayed. Um, the the biggest victim of all of this is the Air Force's reputation. I mean, you know, they had this. I think I think I may have talked about it, but I just want to repeat it. Last year, last week, they had this conference of uh, senior commanders in the IDF uh, from the from the ground forces and the Air Force. And this Air Force lieutenant colonel told his colleagues that you don't have to worry; we'll always be here when you need us. And the crowd. I just burst out in laughter. Uh, the Air Force is no longer trusted by the Green Army, by the land forces. So this is something that the Air Force is going to have to work on. Um, I think it's very important, uh, as I wrote about last week, to you know rethink the centrality of the Air Force's Israel's sole strategic arm in the IDF. Um, I'm going to be writing more about that in, in the future. But um, I think that, again, the, the left has overplayed its hand. 
Now we're going to see this in the coming days, in the coming weeks. Uh, it looks pretty bad right now, but I, I don't think that this can maintain itself. Don't forget, you know, Barack was pushed out of politics. He has no constituency for anything. And so the fact that he and his friends from Merits and these other parties that aren't in the Knesset are leading this charge uh, is an indication of their political weakness, not their political strength. And we'll just have to see. But, you know, kudos to the government for standing up to these bullies. I know it was really, really hard. And uh, we're just going to have to see where we go from here and uh, keep staying strong. So take care. Those are my thoughts this week. And I'll talk to you again next week. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.